0: Welcome to our podcast from the ARC Insider, the Africa Focus podcast offering some informal but well informed Africa Focus conversation, touching on news, current affairs, culture, and other ongoing topics of interest. I'm Karen Allen, and I'm speaking to you from South Africa. My co presenter, Tara O'Connor, the managing director of ARC, the Pan African risk consultancy firm Africa Risk Consulting, joins me from France. We both live, breathe, and work African affairs. And our podcast aims to stimulate ideas amongst those who share a fascination with this part of the world.
1: Tara, welcome. Good to see you again. So, Karen, I greet you from France, where on this occasion I've had to put up notices on my front and back doors to prevent my... Happy neighbours from wandering in, as they have taken to doing recently, delivering me eggs and vegetables, which I totally love, but not when I'm trying to record or when I'm on a conference call with clients or friends. Well,
0: just to share that informality, I'm sitting with you with the studio dog next to me. So it's part of the warm, cosy feel that is The Ark Insider. I'm talking to you, Tara, from from South Africa. And, of course, we've just started to roll out the COVID-19 vaccines to healthcare workers. And there are also, of course, big political and legal battles within the governing ANC with the suspended Secretary General of the party, Ace Magashule, who's a close ally, as you know, of former President Jacob Zuma. Well, he's challenging his party in court for kicking him out over corruption allegations. It's been a big story. It's been rumbling on for some time. But it is an important story because it, of course, exposes the fault lines within the governing party and will really reveal just how committed the ANC is on tackling grand corruption. And, of course, the boss of the party and the boss of the country, Cyril Ramaphosa, currently in France. He's attending the France-Africa Summit important issues on the agenda, of course, Mozambique and the ramping up of terrorist activity there in the north that have forced companies like Total to suspend operations um, very much on the agenda. Well, we've got a lot of other stories to get through today. So let's have a quick reminder of some of the issues that have made it into the headlines since our last podcast.
2: The military in Congo says a major city threatened by a massive volcanic eruption
1: has been spared. They say molten lava that was streaming toward Goma came to a stop just a few hundred meters from the city limits. The Nigerian Authority army says its investigating reports that Boko Haram leader, Abubakar Shekau, has died after blowing himself up to avoid being captured by a the deadly
2: conflict between Israeli forces and Palestinian militants led by Hamas is entering its second week and there is little sign of a political or diplomatic breakthrough.
0: Always interesting to take stock of news events there. Well, Tara, I know you have a few stories up your sleeve which are essentially good news stories for Africa. First of all, the Kazangula Bridge Project, which is a potential game changer for transporting people and goods across southern Africa by linking Botswana and Zambia across the Zambezi River. Tell us more.
1: Yes, the Kazangula crossing is a a critical um, crossing point, which links Namibia, Botswana and Zambia at the banks of the river Zambezi. And in fact, it has always been an important trade crossing. But until the opening of this bridge, it was served by two uh, pontoons, you know, literally bridge bridge uh, boats that carry enormous articulated lorries across the Zambezi River and of course causing enormous backlogs and bottlenecks, trade crossing bottlenecks, which this new bridge wipes away completely. And um, it also, you know, Kazangula Crossing also has particular memories for me Because, in fact, as a child, when we were once going on holiday, a Christmas holiday as a family across to the Botswana, to spend it in Chobe. And at the time, it was a time of war between three countries, effectively. Uh, Namibia, uh, War of Independence, Zimbabwe's War of Independence, and Zambia that had got stuck in the middle. And, in fact, we were on the pontoon, on our car, when... A border skirmish broke out when so there were bullets flying around Um, but I'm happy to say that we live to tell the tale but I'll never forget that uh, terrifying event. So this story jumped out at me and what's amazing about it is that this bridge is not only a, a very beautiful piece of engineering that comprises a dual carriageway to replace the pontoons, a railway connecting Zambia-Livingston with um, a central district town in Botswana, a walkway for pedestrians across the Zambezi River, absolutely critical. But also, it will allow something like 250 trucks per day to cross and will reduce crossing times uh, from 36 hours to two, which I think is an absolute game changer. Most crucially, it will also provide a brand new route, an alternative route to the uh, Zimbabwe-Chirundu bike bridge crossing down to the ports in South Africa for the yeah. SADEX northernmost countries. So the economies, Democratic Republic of Congo, Zambia, um and Malawi will all have an alternative to uh, the very increasingly inefficient and corrupt route through Zimbabwe. And
0: whenever you talk about and- Bait Bridge, sorry to interrupt Tara, but you know, in, in South Africa yes, when you no. mention Beitbridge, Bridge or you talk to any Zimbabwean or any person who's gonna go across to Zimbabwe a lot and and just it, it conjures up this image of of frustration and, you know, nervousness as well because of the, the sheer amount of time people have to wait. I mean, that people are people are waiting for 12 plus hours sometimes to get across.
1: First of all, it has to be said that Bike Bridge is the busiest crossing in, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's one of the biggest, it's the most busy trade route with uh, thousands of people crossing every day, thousands of trucks trying to cross every day. But as you say, hampered by... Uh, by politics on both sides, by corruption on both sides uh, and just a very difficult crossing. And now this is now a completely uh, seamless alternative.
0: Well, also another positive story, uh, copper. The price of copper is up. Now, for those of us who don't follow commodity prices as religiously as some, and I know you do follow these things, um, Tara, what does that actually mean and what's driving that price rise?
1: Well, initially, I mean, the price has shot up ninety percent, which is quite extraordinary. And what's really driving it is the uh, is that everybody's recognition that the post COVID uh, uh, recovery will be through a green transition. So, what does that mean? That means that we that all the world's economies are going to be moving towards electrification. And what does copper do? Copper is a superconductor. Um, and it is superconductor for electricity. So copper is used in absolutely everything from electric cars to microchips to new heating systems and actually the transmission of copper it, of of electricity itself. So when you know when economists have been actually looking at what does that mean for the world. Uh, they have realized that copper production will have to increase by about a million tons per year in order to meet the demand for copper by mid-century. And in order to meet... The, um, the demands of net zero energy by mid-century. So one of the least explored or least, uh, least explored areas for copper, I mean, Zambia has its copper belt. A whole host of its towns in the north of the country are named after the metal. And across the border into southern DRC is also really the El Dorado of copper, so it really is a massive uh, fillip for those countries, and it is also a challenge for those countries to use what could be another supercycle, copper supercycle, where demand is very high for a long period of time, which means the price will be up and possibly sustained for a long period of time. And it really is incumbent on the governments of those countries to facilitate what's going to happen, which will be an uptick in exploration, production and export of copper.
0: You're listening to The Ark Insider, the africa Focus podcast with Karen Allen and Tara O'Connor. Now, our guest today is a South African soldier turned economic forecaster and a key figure in security policy circles who's published an important book on the future of this continent, Dr Yaki Silias, formerly an artillery officer in the South African Defence Forces who was instrumental in helping to transform the military after the end of apartheid, now focuses on African futures as part of his work at the institute he established 30 years ago, the Institute for Security Studies. At this point, I have to have a brief disclosure alert. I do do a bit of consulting for this highly regarded organisation. So in a way, I've had ringside seats observing Jackie do his work, processing vast amounts of data to help make predictions about Africa's future path.
2: Jackie, welcome. Good to to talk to you. Thanks very much, Karen. Great to be here.
0: We have you next to me here in the studio, obviously socially distanced. We have my colleague Tara O'Connor joining us from France.
1: You're very welcome to The Ark Insider.
0: Now, we've got you onto our podcast, Yaki, because you've published a very important book entitled Africa First, Igniting a Growth Revolution, which is based on vast amounts of data to essentially forecast the continent's growth trajectory. It really is a fascinating read, but it's also a rather sobering revelation, if you like, of the huge challenges that face the continent and how to make an extremely youthful population productive. First of all, before we go into the weeds of the book, what was the motivation for this kind of project?
2: Karen, I've been doing work on, on Africa for many years. For From 1990 until 2015, I worked with the Organisation of African Unity in the Africa Union looking at peace and security issues. Mm. But I became increasingly frustrated because you're dealing with the symptom of the problem. And so when I stepped down as Executive Director of the Institute in 2015, I really shifted my entire focus to look at the drivers of growth and development, mm-hmm. which is economics. And um, so I went to Denver. I uh, worked at the Frederick S. Party Center for International Futures, and I used their model, mm-hmm. which is a global uh, forecasting uh, platform, which we use to generate all our work. So it's really moving from security, which is really I'm dealing, as I've said, with putting some uh, patch on a on a bleeding wound uh, to trying to deal with the symptoms of Africa's develop- of Africa's challenges. And
0: you mentioned data. I mean, the vast amounts of data that you're having to process for this, and this is obviously an ongoing project, that simply would not have been possible 10 years ago to do the kind of forecasting that you're doing.
2: No, it wouldn't. Data is improving the whole time. Now, the model we use, which is open source and, and free, by the way, um, has 6,500 data sets in it. Um, and it forecasts about 500 of these variables. The forecasts are not linear extrapolations. They're based on academic literature. And so everything is interconnected. Mm. So within F's, uh, you pull levers and you look where the countries are going and what could be done based on historical precedent to improve things uh, for countries at similar levels of education, similar levels of uh, of income. So we prefer the term forecasting, not prediction. Yes. Prediction means that you know what's going to happen and we don't. Sounds like a horoscope. Yeah, no, yeah. I,
0: this is far more scientific. I get that. Tara?
1: Yuki, you cover a lot of ground in the book, but I think the part that we would like to focus on um, is the issue of what economists and politicians describe as the demographic dividend. In theory, a youthful population in Africa should mean more people of working age contributing to the economy and to economic growth, and yet Africa lags behind many Asian countries. Because of the proportion of dependence to working age people, does that simply delay the point at which demographic dividend pay or payoff, as we might call it, happens?
2: Yes, it does. Um, Africa, on average, only gets to its demographic dividend. It enters its demographic dividend just after 2050, about 2054. Much of Africa has such a young population that literally you can't build schools fast enough. You can't educate teachers, provide water and sanitation fast enough. So in Africa, our very youthful population is actually a drag on development. It reduces over time. But um, it, it, it remains a drag on development because the ratio of working age people, 15 to 65, to dependents, children below 15, elderly above 64, that ratio is what is important. China, the Asian tigers had a very high ratio. They actually peaked at about 2.8 working age people per dependence. Africa is going to peak at about 2.1. And much later, So very, very important because our major contribution to economic growth is labor. We don't have capital. We don't have technology. We have labor. So we need to improve the ratio of working age people to dependents and quickly. And that would also boost Africa's growth over long time horizons.
0: It's interesting because you've just touched upon sort of the ingredients of uh, what creates economic growth and for people who are not economists and, you know, we've got a rudimentary understanding of economics. I did do an economics degree, but it was a heck of a long time ago. But this idea of how you grow an economy, the ingredients are labour... Capital, um, capital and Technology. Correct. Now, your book talks about technology being the game changer. It allows for sort of exponential growth, but it it has to kick in at a particular time. You know, historically, we've seen technological developments like steam power, but we've also seen things like vaccines or, you know, polio vaccine that has a huge um, knock on effect on how a, a population is able to develop. Just talk us through at what point technology can kick in and what sort of things are we talking about and what are the kind of big benefits that can come with it?
2: We typically use the World Bank income groupings of countries between low, low low-middle, upper-middle and high-income countries. If you're a low-income country, labour is the only contribution Mm. you really make. As you go up the income curve, middle-income, capital becomes more important, uh, high-income countries, technology becomes more important. So because Africa has 23 low and 23 low-middle-income countries, six upper-middle-income countries, two high-income countries. So uh, where you are in your development trajectory depends what makes the largest contribution. And it is generally labor in much of Africa, partly because we're not attracting sufficient capital and we need to go up the technology curve. And you can only do that if you have a population that is well-fed, well-educated, And ready for the fourth industrial revolution. And
0: technology, just in terms of definitions, technology doesn't necessarily mean sort of Silicon Valley type technology. It means efficiencies.
2: It means everything that that you use to improve the ability to use money, Mm. capital and labour. So technology is, you know, doing bottled water and, and making toothpicks. Uh, it's not high-end technology. Technology is also, as you indicate, processes that make things more effective. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, the way in which you grow an economy is to get up the manufacturing curve, because manufacturing as a sector has got forward and backward linkages to agriculture and services. It changes the productive structures of your economy. So that's why the Asian Tigers, China and all of these countries, try and embark on, a, well, have embarked on a manufacturing-led um, growth path. We always say the all escalators lead up uh, go, you go up with all escalators, but the manufacturing escalator goes up much more rapidly than the services escalator. Traditionally, you make agriculture manufacturing services so if you 're a high end a high income country the united states you 're driven by services but it 's high end services uh, if you 're africa it's it 's really you, you need to get your agriculture g- going. And Africa talks about a lot about Afri- agriculture, but we actually don't do anything about mm-hmm. agriculture. So we're not getting an agricultural revolution like India or Brazil had. And one of the big things in my book is we really need to focus on agriculture and use agro-processing then to go up the manufacturing curve. And that's how you enter your, your manufacturing growth.
1: Yaki, you you mentioned that, I mean, you meant bring up the U.S. of A and the U.S. and the U.S. has managed to sustain its demographic uh, dividend for over 100 years. And so what can African countries do, A, to catch up and B, to prolong that? Dividend?
2: Excellent question. Um, there are two ways in which the demographic dividend benefit you. The first, which is the experience of China and the Asian tigers, is to have a very rapid increase in your demographic dividend. Um, Other countries, Sweden, the Nordics and the U.S. have simply stayed at a positive ratio of working age people to dependents in the case of the the United States for 100 years. That's why it is such a rich country, because it's um, uh, manpower. Staffing people uh, have played such a big role in in economic growth over such a long period. Now, as uh, the ratio of working age people to dependents decline, which is even starting to happen in the US, which has got higher birth rates than, than other countries at similar levels of development, you in actual fact have to compensate that either through technology or capital, mo- mostly through technology, because those three, as Karin, as you said, labor, capital, technology, are the three components of growth. And um, if the one goes down, you compensate with it for the other. Because what you want to do, of course, is to increase average levels of of well-being, income. Uh, We we use a very brute measure, GDP per capita, Mm. to measure that.
0: One of the things that, that, you know, speaking to you here from South Africa, the obvious question is that some of the processes that you talk about, some some of the technological leaps, um, necessarily mean that labour is not used as extensively as it would do at an earlier stage of development. We've got massive unemployment here.
2: How do you square the two things? And the short answer is simply that Africa has got such a surplus of, uh, of people that there's no way that we will be able to create jobs, particularly in the formal sector, to uh, relieve uh, poverty and and reduce inequality. So our future in much of Africa, and you see that in South Africa already, is that you'll have to use continue to use cash grants or transfers, mm-hmm. as well as public work programs and so on and so forth, um, to provide some degree of employment. Um, because employment in the formal sector is how you reduce inequality and build, sustain, uh, and build real productivity. Mm. And what we have in Africa is a very large informal sector, yeah. a very small formal sector. So if you want to grow an economy, to grow employment in the formal sector is the way in which you grow your economy. Many of us... Many economists, I'm not an economist, would argue, yes, but uh, grow employment in the informal sector. Now, the informal sector soaks up unemployed, but it doesn't really contribute to taxes and all of these other things. Can't you
0: tax it, wouldn't that simply be the solution is to find a means of being able to kind of count the informal sector, to be able to quantify it, to measure it, and then tax it, albeit at a very low rate? Or does that then not make it the informal sector?
2: No, that's an excellent point. That actually, we we, we uh, I model um, the impact of leapfrogging, and 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 basically, what we think leapfrogging can do is it can pull people that are in the informal sector into the formal. And once you do that, you start generating small amounts of taxation. They are not only consumers of the roads and other things that the informal sector also uses, but um, they contribute to it, to policing, to everything, to schooling and so on. And reducing the barriers of entry into the formal economy and pulling Africans from the informal into the formal sector is one of the huge uh, advantage of, uh, advantages of modern technology. That is going to ha- how Africa is going to leapfrog. Modern technology means that um, instead of you uh, drilling a, if you that you can drill a borehole in a suburb in in um, uh, a slum area, and you can through technology get people to buy water from that, uh, using you know a few uh, shillings or whatever to pay for getting water instead of that being driven up by a truck. So modern technology allows you to. Um, crowd in the informal sector and to make a business from something that previously you couldn't do, like the provision of water yeah. um, in, for example, Luanda. Almost all the water in the Luanda city is provided by NGOs and by civil society. Mm-hmm. Now, using technology and smartphones and all of this, it becomes a real business. And that's how you crowd in um, from the informal sector into, into the formal sector, formalize it, and it accelerates economic growth.
1: And what do you think is the likely impact of ex- other external factors, you know, com- confounding factors? So, you know, what will be the long-term impact of COVID-19, for example?
2: So we've brought out an updated version of Africa First, which is now open access available on Springer, so you can download it for free, which contains initial forecasts on COVID and currently busy updating that. The The impact of COVID um has means that for the last 2-3 years and for the next year or two about 20 million additional africans are classified as extremely poor below in, living below $1.90 per person per day and uh, the, the impact is is quite devastating in terms of reducing government revenues and it will over time make it make africa miss the sustainable development goals by an even larger margin but what covid is doing it is accelerating the the transformation of your services sector Mm -hmm. Uh, now these are mostly high-end services now you know 30 40 years ago the manufacturing sector was transformed through technology so you had the establishment of long complicated value chains stuff was made you know the iphone was designed in california but made in china whatever the old example but now what is happening services are being taken out we are doing podcasts and we're doing everything remotely and uh, that transformation, um, because Africa is uh, doesn't have the a path dependency of, for example, the developed economies, it means we can leapfrog much more rapidly and that services have the potential to become a more rapid, th- that the services escalator can take us up more rapidly than it has in the past.
1: One of the other things I think in that transformation, obviously, is uh, is. The easy provision of education. Now, the sharp, you know, one of the things that comes out of your, uh, out of your chapter on on this is is that, uh, you know, what you need is a highly educated population to actually really accelerate the demographic. Difference. Yes, I
2: think we all believe that education is like motherhood and apple pie. It it is a, a general good. But what people generally underestimate is the time period that is required to change educational outcomes. Africa lags far behind. Education is hugely important, but like water and sanitation, it takes basically a generation uh, to invest in improvements in in education. And yes, uh, the fourth industrial revolution, technology and so on, has the potential to change education in Africa. Because quite simply, we have so many young people coming through our educational system that, again, we can't uh, provide teachers fast enough. And, and, and in education, quality is more important than quantity. So fourth industrial revolution technology will help with education, but it won't help if we don't do two things. The first is we need to provide Africans with access to electricity, household electricity. Modern technology can make huge advantages through off-grid, mini-grid, solar and other systems. Secondly, we need to provide them access to the internet. These two uh, key uh, interventions, in my view, can uh, do a lot in particularly countries like the DR Congo Mm -hmm. and so on to really change the future of these countries.
1: What have you learned about yourself that is new? What has COVID-19 taught you?
2: I have learned to cook a little bit. I am probably fitter than I've ever been because I go to the gym a lot and I exercise quite a bit. Um, now, COVID has improved productivity um, and what it has demonstrated is the ability to be as effective in the office or at home. Um, and it's, it's really been quite a game changer in so many ways. Uh, The ability to reach out and to speak to international audiences is is quite amazing. And I think COVID has changed certain fundamental things. You know, I'm part of the conference circuit. um, And I think my conference travelling is going to decline quite significantly because it's much more effective to do things remotely. I can speak to you in France from Pretoria in South Africa. I wouldn't have thought this was really the way to do things two years ago.
0: Yaki Selyus, thank you very much indeed.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
1: Thank you very much, Yaki.
0: You've been listening to The ARK Insider with me, Karen Allen, and Tara O'Connor. Thank you for joining us. If you're interested, Tara's team at ARK produces country reports on 22 countries across the region, and you can subscribe to these at info at AfricaRiskConsulting, that's all one word, dot com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. You can use the same address and do feel free to share it on social media and amongst friends. Bye for now.